This is The Trip That Changed Me, a podcast about trips that transform. I'm Esme Benjamin, editor of Full-Time Travel, and every other Thursday, I'll be sitting down with entrepreneurs, writers, entertainers, and everyday adventurers to discuss a journey that shifted their mindset, ignited a new calling, expanded their heart, or ushered in a new chapter. My guest today, Jackie Kai Ellis, is a true multi-hyphenate. She's the owner of two businesses, award-winning Buku Bakery in Vancouver and the Paris Tours, which highlights the best patisseries in the City of Lights. Jackie is also an internationally recognized media personality, stylist, and food and travel journalist, a tastemaker in every sense of the word. But before all the success, Jackie had to endure some incredibly low lows. Stuck in a career she no longer wanted and a marriage that was struggling, she clung to the one thing that provided a glimmer of happiness in her life, baking. I called Jackie at home to find out how a sabbatical in Paris learning how to make French pastries also taught her self-love. From there, she was pretty much unstoppable. Jackie Kayelis, welcome to The Trip That Changed Me. Thanks for having me. So the story you're going to share is, I think, one of those beautiful reminders that it's never too late to start again and pursue what really makes you happy. And also that the key to living a more fulfilled life is to recognize the small things that bring us joy or spark our curiosity and then amplify them as much as possible. So before we jump into the trip itself, let's set the scene. You're living in Vancouver with your husband and you're the creative director and co-owner of a design firm. By anybody's standards, a very successful life, but by your own admission, you were quite miserable during this time. Can you describe what was weighing on your mind? So I think it was exactly that. You know, I had the life that seemed really great and perfect on the outside. I was doing all the things that were supposed to make me happier, that society had told me was supposed to make me happy. I had the great job, the the career, the, the home, the husband. I was contributing to my RSPs every year <laughs> and everything seemed like it was supposed to be on track. And, and I think that was exactly it. It was just that I had achieved everything that was supposed to make me happy and I realized I just wasn't. And the contrast of the two, I didn't know what to do about it. And also it just made it that much more painful. Would you define yourself as like a type A high achieving kind of person? Absolutely. If you saw my bookshelf and how it's color coded, <laughs> you would know how type A I am. I definitely, it's just a part of a part of me. I can't get rid of it. Yeah, I think that can make it even worse because you've worked so hard at building the sort of life that you thought you should have. And then you come to this crushing realization that it's not going to make you happy after all. I think it can be, you know, quite existential in a way. Uh, was there a part of you that thought, you know, if this hasn't given me happiness, then nothing will? Yeah, I think that there were, there are, uh, there were two parts to it. One was exactly that, you know, if everything that people tell me is supposed to make me happy and, and I've done it and yet I feel emptier than I ever have before, then what is supposed to make me happy? And another part of it was just, you know, when we try to create things in our lives for external validation, it becomes this endless cycle of, well, now I can't get out of it because what happens if I stop, who am I if I am not these things to other people, especially what my own identity, what my own desires and uh, what made me happy actually looked like. And so I felt like if my validation from other people didn't exist, I didn't exist either. How old were you at this point? 
when the depression first started, I would say I was about 28. And uh, by the time I went to pastry school, I was 32. Yeah, I think a lot of people start to struggle around that age because I don't know, you start, it's when you start to reassess as as your late 20s and your early 30s come around, you're starting to reassess kind of where you are in life and whether you've hit the right milestones and also whether the, the things that you've achieved are actually the things that make you happy. So when you were going through this low period, did you recognize it as depression? I didn't really know what depression was. I knew that I was having a really hard time getting up in the morning I would say that I was a very high functioning depressed person because I would show up at work and knock it out of the park every single day. Uh, But every single morning I would dread waking up and I would actually have to have a talk with myself. You know, what's one thing, just one thing that's going to make me want to live today. It wasn't until I was Googling ways to kill myself that I thought, from a very logical standpoint, okay, this is not normal. I don't think people who are healthy are doing this on a daily basis. And so that's when I decided to look for some help. Did you confide in people close to you at this point? No, I think that, you know, a, a part of it was just, there's so much shame around depression. And it's a little bit better now. I find that people are destigmatizing it by talking about it, but Back then, it was, it was very much, I didn't, I barely even knew what was wrong. And it was really hard for me to admit that I wasn't doing okay, that I wasn't fine. And that, you know, if I were to tell people that I, were, I was depressed, they'd say, well, what do you have to be depressed about? You know, your life is perfect. And so no, nobody knew except for my, my former husband And he would be the only person that would, sometimes on very, very low mornings, he would wrap me up in a blanket and carry me to a chair and just say, do the minimum today. Just look at yourself and just do enough that you can still respect and love yourself today. And that's it. In the note you sent to our producers, you wrote, each morning I woke up, I would try to think of one thing that would give me a reason to live, even a small reason. Most days it was the idea of eating a chocolate chip cookie after lunch. It wasn't the food itself per se. It was that for those five minutes in the day, it was just me. No one else to please, nothing to prove, just me and a chocolate chip cookie. And it seems like this moment of self-care with the cookie was a little signpost to a new path. How did this spark a deeper interest in baking for you? Well, I think, you know, when when your day is so completely devoid of any kind of pleasure for yourself and you're so focused on making everyone else happy and keeping up appearances for everyone else, you know, when you have one tiny, seemingly insignificant thing that gives you pleasure just for you and it's private and no one else can touch it, it became like pins and, you know, when you're rock climbing, those pins in a wall that you kind of climb onto and that holds you there against this massive rock face that you don't know how you're going to overcome. And so I took that and I did it every day for as as many as years. And then that eventually turned into, well, I love this chocolate chip cookie, so I'm going to try to find the best chocolate chip cookie in the city. And then that turned into, I'm going to try baking the best chocolate chip cookie, baking like 
you know, 30 different recipes, 40 different recipes, which turned into, oh my gosh, I really love baking. I love when I'm in the kitchen and I can connect back to my senses. I can smell things, I can hear things, I can touch things, taste them. And it gave me a, a reprieve from everyday life. I, I didn't have to think about anything else but this chocolate chip cookie, which turned into baking five layer cakes a week, giving them all away. And then eventually starting a farmer's market bakery on the side of uh, my design business. And then eventually deciding to take a sabbatical uh, year off and going to Paris to study pastry just because it was the one thing that pulled me out of the abyss that I was in. I think so many people relate to that dream of a second life, you know, whether it's a new city or a new partner or a new career, but it definitely can be hard to make that leap for so many reasons. What was that moment when you decided, okay, I'm going to take a six-month sabbatical and study baking in Paris? Well, I mean, it, it came very slowly. And I'll give you a little bit of backstory, which which I've written about before in the memoir. But part of it was that I had always dreamt of having children. And one day I talked to my former husband and he had changed his mind. He just said after five years or whatever it was of being married, he just said, I, I don't want kids anymore. And I firmly believe that people have the right to change their minds about this and that no one should ever be forced into uh, such a huge decision, mainly for the people involved, including the children. So, and I decided to stay with him uh, regardless, because I, I thought to myself, well, I made a commitment to this man and neither of us are are, are dying and it's till death do us part sort of thing. So, um, and so one of the reasons why we decided to go on the sabbatical was I just said, look, if we're not having children, I want to do the things that people that don't have children do, which is travel for six months or a year or whatever. And also to put all the money that we had saved for having kids into something for ourselves. And and so it was about six months of planning to actually realizing it from a thought to getting on a plane. Oh, wow. That makes a lot of sense. And I'd love to know, honestly, as somebody who's, I have literally no knowledge of baking whatsoever. It's pretty much limited to watching the Great British Baking Show. <laughs> but I would love to know what your experience was like at this fancy Parisian pastry school. Well, I mean, it was literally my dream come true. <laughs> How do I describe it? Prior to going to pastry school, I had taken out all these books from the library, um, culinary school textbooks and baked through them. I had baked through countless home baking books, uh, you know, and then also saved money on the side to pay culinary school instructors in Vancouver, where I was, to teach me on the side privately the things that I couldn't find because back then there weren't there weren't that many blogs and, and resources on the internet for um, for baking, and so just so that people know that this is my level of baking was already so obsessive and so high before I went to pastry school <laughs> that most of my education I think came from teaching myself through books. So that what I when I finally went to pastry school, I was just completely immersed and indulging and being surrounded by the environment of people who were equally as passionate about the same topic as me, but also 
it was this refinement of my own palate. So you think you know what a good cake is until you taste a really good cake. And you're like, wow, okay, now I need to know how to reproduce that. So it was just an immersion. And it was like being in the best food network show ever, but it's in real life. It's like not virtual reality. It's like reality right in front of you. It was amazing. It was super cool. Did they teach you in French or English? It was, uh, I was very lucky. It was uh, supposed to be in French, but my instructor spoke both very fluently. And so he would, re he would actually repeat everything in English for me. And that's how I started to learn French uh, based off of being able to compare the sentences side by side. Oh, that's super interesting. And you'd actually visited Paris before, but hadn't been that enamored with it. How did your feelings about the city change during this trip? It completely flipped 180 degrees. Even when I first landed in Paris, I was thinking, well, I'm only here for the pastry school. I don't really care about the city. But it was through discovering the beauty of the city. And I do believe that Paris is so beautiful that it spoon feeds you in inspiration that is not hard to find. It's on every street corner, every door, every architectural detail, the food, the smells, the, you know, just the way that the light hits the buildings. It spoon feeds you this incredible amount of beauty that it's hard not to grow to love the city. Yes, the city has its own quirks like any other city, but I think part of it is just that I needed to be woven into the city before I could appreciate it. Yeah, people love Paris. It's not the first time that someone on this podcast has, uh, you know, had a story relating to Paris. So that's interesting. To go back to the stuff with your husband, what was he doing while you were at pastry school? He spent a lot of time meditating, actually. That was his uh, passion. And we had a deal for the sabbatical. It was six months for me, six months for him. And we would follow each other on our respective adventures. And so while I was at pastry school and, and exploring the city on my own, he spent a lot of solo time doing what he felt like he wanted to do, which was just basically sitting in the, in the apartment and meditating and, and going deeper into his uh, spiritual development. So it seems like you're kind of blossoming as a person and the depression starts to lift. Did you feel like a day-to-day -day improvement or did it feel more dramatic than that? I think the depression started to lift slowly years before I went to Paris. Um, and it was lifting through being able to, it was day-to-day. -day. It was sometimes a struggle. Sometimes you feel like you're not getting anywhere at all. And then all of a sudden, one day you think back, to three months ago and you think, wow, okay, things have changed. And I always like to imagine climbing out of depression or, climb, or improving or learning in any way as a spiral upwards. It's never a direct line. Sometimes you kind of spiral and you feel like you're back in the same place, but actually it seems like the same place, but you're a little bit further ahead. And so this is, it was a constant spiral, spiral upwards until the point where I could even pinpoint things that I loved. Because when you're in the midst of depression, you barely even know what you think. Everything feels numb. And so to even say, I like this, or I love this, 
has to uh, be, there has to have been quite um, an improvement by then. I mean, I'm certainly not an expert, but it sounds like it was more of a situational depression than like a chemical thing. And so, you know, sometimes I know when I'm having a tough time in terms of my mental health, my inclination is always to take a trip if possible, (laughs) similar to you. And perhaps part of that is the hope that you can kind of outrun your emotions, which is obviously wishful thinking. Um, But I do think there's something to be said for the change of scenery and the way it can help shift your perspective. So how much do you think being in a new place um, created a more positive outlook for you? Uh, I think it's it's huge. I think that, you know, one thing I that traveling does for me is that because nothing's normal, you know, you're you're out of your routine. You're not in the same language. You're not in the same room. You don't have the same habits or or even the same place where you have coffee every morning that you're forced to engage with the present moment that much more. You're seeing things that you don't see. You're actually looking and listening and smelling things. And I think that that's what happiness is, is just being able to engage with that which is right in front of you in any given second. And so I think that's why people feel so inspired and so alive when they're traveling is because they don't have a choice. Their brain is forcing them to look at things uh, from a new perspective and to engage with whatever's happening right in front of them. And as someone who eventually uh, started as a travel writer uh, years later, I was traveling six to nine months out of the year. And And believe me, even traveling becomes normal. And so unless we learn how to engage with the present moment, wherever we are, even travel won't fix it. But travel is an amazing way to jumpstart that, that practice, I right. think. I guess it's kind of like, it's mindfulness, essentially. It's being in the present moment. Absolutely. Yeah, I think so. Um, so it sounds like you are really learning to trust yourself and love yourself again. And sadly, as you say, at the same time, your marriage is struggling. I feel very lucky that you're willing to talk about this because I know it must be, it's a difficult thing to talk about. But I also think it's so important because so many people go through the disintegration of a marriage. Um, And at this point, did you have a very clear sense that one whole chapter of your life was ending while another one was beginning? Well, while I was in Paris, it was truly a blossoming and I had no idea what would come afterwards. I didn't know the divorce would happen. I didn't know... I just had no perception. All I knew is that I felt like a different person. And I even wrote in in my book that prior to going to Paris, I had a lot of body image issues and, and all, you know, like so many women and men do, I always felt like I wasn't enough. The way that I looked wasn't skinny enough. My stomach wasn't flat enough. I just, there were moments where I detested my own body. And one of the biggest changes was that I was able to see how beauty was this subjective thing and that I could decide whatever, however I defined beauty and that I could decide that I was beautiful and that that was it. And I remember coming back, I detested myself prior to going to Paris and I remember landing back in Vancouver and I was plump from all the pastries and (laughs) all the eating and and traveling 
that I had just indulged in in a very, very positive way. And I remember my pants were a little bit tight and I had a silk shirt on. And I was walking down the street, fully owning the presence of my beauty inside of this thing that was called my body. And I remember feeling the silk graze my stomach and, and my shoulders. And, and I remember thinking, God, I feel so beautiful. Oh, and in I that love moment, that. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember in that moment thinking, ah, oh, that's right. I've changed. I'm a new person. Yeah, it must have been the weirdest thing arriving back home in Canada and feeling like you changed so much and that yet everything else is still very much the same. Um, and what was your plan once you arrived back home? Were you intending to return to work, your original work? Well, I think that I had given myself a little bit of time to figure out what what would happen because I, I didn't want the time that I was away to be full of the stress of figuring out, okay, well, after this ends, I have to figure out what next. But so when I did come back, I wrote down, you know, suspending all concept of reality, what we think of as reality. And I wrote down all the things that I would want to do in my life or as a next step. And one of them was start a food uh, tour business in Paris. But at the time, my former husband didn't like Paris. And so there was no way I could go back. Uh, another one was writing a cookbook. And I was thinking, well, who's going to read a cookbook from some unknown, just <laughs> random woman? And I was like, where do you even start with that? So that's not a, really a possibility. I was like, I'd love to be a food travel journalist. And I was like, I don't have a journalism degree. Like, what it, like, who would I be to do this? And the last one was, I'd love to start a bakery and give people the same joy and the same reprieve that bakeries had given me in the past when in the midst of my depression. I thought that I could do, that I know how to do. Well, I mean, I did really know how to do it, but I thought I could figure that out. So that's where I started. And what's funny is after five years or so, I had basically done everything on the list without fully knowing it. So that's something to say for putting intentions out there. Right. Yeah, you absolutely nailed it. You've done all of those things. It's amazing. And Buku Bakery, that's the name of your bakery, um, was an immediate hit, won lots of awards, and also is featured in you know outlets like Bon Appetit. So very much a success. That must have felt so gratifying. Like you took this massive risk, you followed your gut, and it massively paid off. Yeah, I mean, it was it was truly something that I wanted to put out there because I knew that I would regret not having tried. And I was very, very aware that failure was a possibility because all the research that I'd done was that one in 11 bakeries don't survive past the first year. And I still wanted to do it. So I knew all the risk and I was prepared to basically live in the loft at the bakery and shower in the buildings, shower for the first three years. I was 100% prepared to do that. But it was an immediate success and I was very lucky. And I ended up uh, building it to a point where I was very proud of it. And then I sold it to two of my apprentices because they wanted to expand and I was just happy with it the way it was. And I felt like, okay, well, I've learned enough and they want to learn more. So 
here you go. And so that's that's how the next chapter of my life started. And you end up, obviously, as you've touched on, writing a book about the trip called The Measure of My Powers, which is billed as a memoir of food, misery in Paris, which I loved. I'm seeing some parallels between your journey and that of Elizabeth Gilbert and Eat, Pray, Love. Has anyone else made that comparison? Yeah, yeah, people have made that comparison, although I've seen a lot of comments saying that mine is a... a a bit darker than hers. I think it goes into the the nuances of of the depression and climbing out of that a lot more than hers does. I think, uh, although she does a lot of stuff that I obviously <laughs> haven't done <laughs> with my book. So there, it's definitely got that sense of coming to your own and self love and and all those really really crucial topics that bind every human being together. Exactly. I think it's such a hopeful and timeless story. Um, And I know Gilbert got a lot of criticism from people who felt like, you know, she was selfish and privileged to be able to go on this mission of self-discovery. Have you experienced anything similar or people mostly felt very inspired by your story? I think people felt, um, for on on the most part, people feel inspired, I think. Uh, Of course, this is privileged. I mean, I I think it is. I grew up as uh, an Asian, a second generation Asian Canadian uh, in a first world country in a very beautiful city. My parents worked their butts off in order to give me the privilege that I have. I mean, my mom grew up in ex- not, well, I would say extreme poverty. She grew up in the shanty towns of Kowloon, not being able to uh, have an education because she needed to, at the age of 13, work and uh, also line up at all of the churches for for extra food. And so I was born knowing my privilege, and I take it extremely seriously because how horrible would it be if my parents were to work that hard for me to be able to have a life where I can even consider the idea of what makes me happy and then choose a life that doesn't make me happy. I mean, that's just crazy. They didn't have a choice. They were just trying to survive. And as immigrants, it probably wasn't easy for them. And yet they still became extremely successful from an outside perspective but also really successful human beings that are loving and kind. So, yeah, I I know I'm privileged to be able to think of, to ask myself the question, what's my purpose and am I happy? And, yeah, that's pretty crazy. <laughs> if you have one piece of advice for somebody else who is trying to summon the courage to make a big life change, what would it be? I think that the hardest part about making a life change is the fear of losing what you already have. And so I would say that nothing will really change until the pain of staying where you are doesn't become greater than the risk of doing something unknown. And so that doesn't necessarily need to be forced. I think sometimes when people have to do something new, 
it naturally becomes unbearable not to do the new thing. And so you just wait for that to happen because it eventually does come if it's necessary. And if you had to summarize exactly how this trip changed you, what would you say? I think that it allowed me to see that the world was beautiful and that I was no different, that I'm beautiful too. Jackie, thank you so much. That was lovely. Thanks for sharing your story. Thank you so much for having me. I think there are so many important lessons in it for people who are struggling with their current situation and wondering if there might be something more meaningful out there for them. I have a couple of quickfire questions before you go. Yeah. The first one is, what is the one thing that you believe every person should experience in their lifetime? Fear and joy. Ooh, I like it. Is that weird? Okay, sorry. I'm like, (laughs) is that what you were looking for? I wasn't sure. (laughs) No, anything. There's no wrong answer to this question. I'm just curious to know what you you thought. Okay. Why fear and joy? I think fear makes people compassionate. When you know what fear is and you see someone else have fear, you can stop and you can comfort them because you know what that feels like to be in that place. And fear is also something when fully felt is the genesis of, of courage. So I think people need to feel that to be able to connect to their own humanity and other people's humanity and joy for obvious reasons, because (laughs) if there wasn't joy, then gosh, like, why would we ever be courageous? (laughs) (laughs) Right. You've got to have a reward somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And the second question, you're obviously quite the experienced traveler. So what's the one thing you never, ever travel without? I mean, it's so boring. My cell phone. I mean, (laughs) okay, I'll give you a better one. Well, you could say um, which apps you can't live without when you're traveling. Oh, I'm also boring. Like, like (laughs) what? Like Google Maps? I don't know. Like, I'm not that. uh, I'm not like one of those people that have like, oh, I have a chapstick I always bring. Like, I I don't know. I, I can give you like a really good packing tip though. This is something okay. that I've I've learned. So at Muji, they have these um, mesh cube bags that you fold all of your clothes into and then you put them into cubes and that way you can stuff more into your suitcase while keeping it organized. Oh, like a compression type thing. Yeah, but they're really just like like mesh bags that yeah. are are like that kind of go into like cube mm. shapes that basically you just your whole suitcase is just like organized little stacks of clothes it's like for an a type it's like a freaking miracle <laughs> do you organize outfits <laughs> i'm i'm one of those people that i love only traveling with a carry on even if i'm traveling for 3 weeks so I do organize interchangeable outfits and I think that you're that a person only really needs five outfits for anything. Ooh. I mean, yeah, so I mean, granted going to a similarly weather destinations, you really only need five outfits 
because people pack more, but they only ever end up wearing the same five outfits. And if you're traveling for three weeks, you have to do laundry anyway. So that's why I only ever pack five. So say more about these these five outfits. Do they each have a different function? Um, well, you know, when you think, I mean, they'll have like similar functions depending on what you'd need them for. But I usually pack outfits that can go from day to night. Uh, things that are relatively comfortable, unless I'm doing business events, which then we just all have to be uncomfortable pretending to be comfortable. <laughs> and then um, I usually pack uh, like two pairs of shoes, one pair of shoes that I mean, thank God for athleisure. Like, <laughs> that's one thing, right? Where like you can get away with wearing like a fancy pair of sneakers. But two to three pairs of shoes, a pair of like nice flat sandals, because those take no room in the suitcase. You wear a pair of um, sneakers and then a pair of like running shoes like that compress because I, I like to run. So Awesome. Well, thank you very much again. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Find out more about Jackie, pick up a copy of her memoir, The Measure of My Powers, which was recently published in French. Visit her website, Apartment Lafayette, a highly stylish source of inspiration helping readers find meaningful beauty in the everyday. Or you can follow her on Instagram, of course, at Jackie Kai Ellis. Before you go, I want to introduce you to our on-staff travel advisor, Chelsea Martin. She's an affiliate of Embark and Virtuoso, and she's also a travel influencer in her own right. You can find her on Instagram at Passport to Friday. In this segment of the show, which I like to call Ask a Travel Advisor, Chelsea and I spend a couple of minutes discussing the ins and outs of her work. If you're curious about the kinds of perks she can score for your next trip, pay close attention. I'll also pick her brain on travel trends, tricks, and tips. Chelsea has been everywhere and knows everything about travel. What perks can you offer travelers? I think the biggest perk is honestly just ease of mind. Having someone plan your trip, knowing that you have someone at bat for you, both in the planning process while you're traveling and even afterwards. But then also on top of that, we do have the tangible perks, which at a lot of our partnered hotels and whatnot, we can offer amenities such as upgrades, breakfast, resort credit, all of that. So it varies per hotel and per destination, but those are some of the perks we can add in. And how much does it cost to hire a travel advisor? Because that all sounds amazing, all those perks and upgrades. But yeah, I want to know kind of what the price point is for these services. Yeah, so it definitely varies. If I'm just booking a hotel for a client, which a lot of clients do come to me and they're like, hey, we want to go to St. Bart's for four days. Where do you recommend? I'll put together a hotel proposal of top places that I think depending on their what they're looking for and that is all complimentary so can book a hotel for free amazing and then from there if you want to do full service planning we do have planning fees that are based off the number of days number of travelers uh, kind of the complexity of the trip so it's a very minimal fee compared to if you were to spend all that time yourself so Great. And what's the ultimate honeymoon destination, in your opinion? 
So that is a loaded question, but <laughs> I would say I love how honeymooners are becoming more creative with their honeymoons now and also using it as a time to do that bucket list trip that they've always wanted to do. So it's less of let's just go sit on a beach, which, hey, I do recommend like <laughs> I know we have crazy lives and I know that relaxation is a big component of honeymoons, but I love that people are going more doing safaris in Africa or hiking Patagonia, going to Sri Lanka, so many different destinations. So I like that it's becoming a little bit more out of the box. For me personally, I want to go somewhere where I can completely get off the grid. And so there's quite a few properties out there that you can just completely unplug. And I think there's different places in Southeast Asia. Bhutan's become mm. kind of a more unique destination. I'd love to go there. And you can combine that well with other destinations. So, yeah. Favorite city and why? For me, I would say Florence, Italy, because that is where I studied abroad. And that's where I really grew my love of travel. It was my first time ever in Europe. And it's where I really found that this could be a career and was exposed to so much more. And also just as a traveler, I think it's an amazing destination because it's a walkable city, has some of the best food, way of life, culture, art, architecture. It's just an absolutely stunning city. Number one jet lag tip. I would say set yourself to that time zone, either right when you land or even before. So if I'm going to Europe, I'll board my plane. I won't be eating. So I'll be kind of already on that time zone. So I'll try to eat dinner at the time that it would be dinner in that destination. And then when I land, just try to assimilate to that time zone as soon as possible. And then as hard as it is to not nap right when you land, I think getting up and going and moving your body and again, going to bed at more of a normal hour, I honestly combat jet lag within a day by doing that wow I mean you have to because you're literally always traveling I don't know how your body must be so confused I know all the time (laughs) are there any apps you use religiously while traveling well for me google maps is a lifesaver and also I like that google maps really is updated in real time so I use it here in New York but then also when I'm traveling you can give me the up-to-date traffic it can give me suggestions of where to eat around um because you can follow your yes Mm -hmm. explore and you can also follow your friend's map so if I have a friend that's been to Paris a lot and they've bookmarked all of these amazing restaurants I can just pull it up and see where to go love that also for me I think it's important to keep to somewhat of the same routine while traveling so for me that is working out and staying healthy. So two apps that I love to do for workouts on the go are Sculpt Society and Melissa Wood Health because both you can easily do in your hotel room and just still moving your body and still getting a workout in, I feel like makes me feel, it once again, it combats the jet lag, mm. but it also just makes me feel like I'm a little bit in the same routine. And then I also like Calm for meditating just to keep that going in the morning and get in the right headspace before you actually 
head out the door and start exploring for the day. And you can listen to the sleepy time stories yes. when you're trying to go to bed at night. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I love those. Well, thank you so much, Chelsea. I feel like I could talk to you about this all day. Yes, thank you so much. If there's a burning question you'd like answered on Ask a Travel Advisor, you can send us a note on Instagram at full underscore time underscore travel. Alternatively, you can write to Chelsea directly at chelsea at fttadvisor.com. That's chelsea at fttadvisor.com. <laughs>